0: the made to lead podcast a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of african descent who are leading in their own way i'm your host aziz garuba and on each episode i interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements challenges dreams and aspirations and the lessons they've learned along the way these candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you because you were also made to lead If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. On the show today, I've got Tepfuma Musewe. He is a trade and investment executive dedicated to increasing the connectivity between African markets and other regions of the world. Having grown up as a Canadian citizen, his passion led him to spend most of his working life across Africa. He began in community development, then pivoted to entrepreneurship and established a couple of companies, including a logistics company that moved uh, fast-moving consumer goods for a blue-chip company. And then he worked in market intelligence, consulting multinational clients seeking to penetrate African markets. Tepfuma possesses a unique understanding in establishing businesses and achieving growth in challenging economic environments. And he's got a very diverse academic background, having obtained a global executive MBA and Bachelor of Science in biology from the University of Toronto, as well as a master's in theology and mission from uh, Akrofi Cristalla Institute. He's also passionate about leading high performance teams and is a project management professional. He's now based in Toronto, Canada, and is the founder of Escaton Solutions, a boutique firm that promotes sustainable trade and investment with African markets. He offers forward-looking market analysis, expertise, and advice to clients who seek to participate in the growth of African markets. And he also recently launched afri Furza, an initiative that seeks to shift the narrative around Africa with a focus on opportunities for collaboration, diasporance, and city resilience. All right, welcome to the show, Tepfuma. Thank for jo- thank you for joining us today. Uh, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, so like we always do uh, at the start of, of every episode, you know, we just want to get to know your starting point what was your upbringing where'd you grow up uh how did you come to to be where you are Let, let's dive into that story first and then we'll get into uh the rest of your career and how you ended up uh starting your own company
1: sure yeah well um you know and feel free to stop me at any point to ask any more questions or dive deeper but i guess as an overview i was born in london England. And I'm actually a twin. Oh, I'm, nice. Yeah. I'm an identical twin. Um, so chances are, if my brother was actually doing this interview, you probably would have no idea that it wasn't me. Wow. And that's uh, Yeah. That's So I, people are often surprised by just um, how identical we are because we live very separate lives, um, but still very connected. So, yeah, I, we were born there. And when I was a month old, We moved to Canada. My parents moved us to Canada. My mother is from Trinidad and Tobago, and my dad is from Zimbabwe. Um, So, yeah, um, came to Canada at the age of about a month old and basically grew up here. Did all of my schooling here right through to my undergraduate. And then from there, I decided that I wanted to move back to the continent. Um, I call it back to because I'd always. I guess, grown up seeing Africa as home, uh, and Africa is a huge place, I guess more specifically Zimbabwe. So I moved back and I lived there for about 11 years. I met a woman who is now my wife and have three kids, three little boys, and we moved to Canada about three years ago, which is where I'm now based, um, right around where I grew up in the greater Toronto area.
0: Nice. That's fantastic. Wow. So, Interesting uh, trajectory, interesting path, right? How did you find, and and when you decided to move back to Zimbabwe, what was the driving force behind that decision?
1: Sure. So ultimately I ended up in South Africa, but um, having grown up here in Canada, there was a sense of disenfranchisement and from a young age having been exposed to the history of black people in North America uh, was, it was actually, it was pretty scary. Um, As a child, I remember being exposed to, you know, the transatlantic slave um, era and, and um, just some of the harsh realities that uh, the black community had been through. So, I remember as a child feeling like I didn't belong here. And this has really come to the fore, obviously, in recent months. And uh, so growing up, I felt that I wanted to reconnect with the land where my ancestors came from because I felt that I would find a place of belonging. So I I think a a big part of it was a drive to to connect uh, with the wider community around me and feel like I was at home. So I initially I wanted to move to Zimbabwe. But because of the um, some of the economic difficulties there at the time, I ended up uh, rerouting to South Africa. And I have family there. and at the time, there was some youth youth development work that I wanted to engage in. So that gave me a nice project as a as I guess a landing pad uh, into my journey there. So yeah, that was about a month long project, and I was supposed to stay in South Africa for eight months. And at the time I was also really into, into the arts. And I was, I was actually supposed to help implement a program, which was called literacy through hip hop. And this is going to be done in Soweto, which is one of the biggest townships. I think, I think the biggest um, in South Africa, very historical. It's where Nelson Mandela came from Desmond Tutu, uh, what, where they were based and a lot of political activism there. And uh, I, I didn't really find a home for it at the time. Um, While I was there, but I I guess, I mean, after, after my eight months there, I had planned to do a month in Mali and do some malaria research there, then return back to Toronto and pursue some studies um, in, in the malaria research, parasitology, but I got to South Africa, fell in love with working with the community and that turned into 10 years in South Africa Wow! and uh, one year in Ghana before coming back.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. What did you spend much of that, you know, 10 years doing?
1: Well, it was a mix. It was a real mix. Because, you know, I'd studied, I w- I'd done a BSc with a focus on biology at the University of Toronto. So um, I came, I came to South Africa with a passion for mentorship, a passion for working with youth and other disenfranchised people. So that ended up being refugees as well. And, um, and people living in some of the red light districts in, in the cities that I was based in. So I spent about four or five years doing that. And so I was teaching life skills, I was developing programming um, for some of these communities. And, uh, and, and then I basically felt like I needed to pivot. And I decided to move into the private sector, into business, started a couple of companies out there and also ended up working for a few companies out there as well.
0: Nice. Very good. Very good. What was the, uh, what was the business climate like as an entrepreneur uh, in South Africa at the time you were there?
1: Yes. Well, so I guess we could look at it from a few angles. So one of the things about, I think, Africa generally, but certainly in the part of South Africa I was in, is that there is an infectious vibe around entrepreneurialism so there's there's hustle everywhere there are people who are coming up with innovative ideas and ways to basically make a living and um and even beyond that to to impact their environments so I found that I was in an environment which was an incredible mix of all these 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 variables you had a lot of young people you still do a lot who were weren't able to find jobs, secure employment. You also had, um, a big disparity between the rich and the poor. South Africa has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. Um, somewhere in the top three, um, uh, at the moment is, um, and so, you know, there's this disparity, there's this longing, you know, there's, there's also the, the fact that it's only about, um, 20 years since, uh, since apartheid, um, you know, finished, I guess was, or, you know, transitioned into a democracy. So there, a, a lot of the, the black population in South Africa is still really disenfranchised. So you have all this, but at the same time, you have this creativity, you know, and, um, this youthful energy and these opportunities, these entrepreneurs who, you know, when democracy happened in 1994, uh, had opportunities to build wealth and to build, um, empires, business empires. So it's, it's a very interesting mix and dynamic. And that was what I was in the middle of. I think the challenge for me was that I, being a foreigner in South Africa, uh, meant that there were a lot of resources I couldn't access. And that might sound surprising, but, um, but it's also a challenge for a lot of local entrepreneurs. One of the biggest challenges is access to capital. Right. That's something that's continually cited.
0: Right. That's true. And you, and you bring, you raise an, an interesting issue, right? It's, you know, one would think that, uh, as an African, uh, you can just walk into any other African country and, and, you know, get access to anything that you want, but it's not the case, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there are borders, there are different rules, uh, different systems, uh, and you still have to go through the immigration processes, um, uh, yeah. that, that, you know, we all, all experience out here, uh, in, in the West. So, uh, you know, how did you, um, You know, so you you spent some time in Ghana as well, and then you know, of course, decided to move back. Uh, What was the what was the deciding factor for you and your your family to to move uh,
1: back to Canada? Sure, it was it was an interesting. Again, you know, I think there was some alignment between a few different things in our lives at the time, and uh, there was some personal choices that we had to make about where we would live. And um, there was an opportunity for me to work here in Canada that had come up through um, through my network. And we thought that it would be a great time to move back because our eldest was also about to go into grade one. And we thought, look, if we are going to move back to Canada, now would be a good time to do it. You know, just thinking that he would have a chance to acclimatize a bit. And, um, and 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 basically, yeah, be able to uh, to enter the school system without too much difficulty. So, it was it was quite a few variables that came together. But ultimately, we thought that there would be great opportunities for us as a family um, to advance ourselves.
0: Okay, cool. So so let's back up a bit. How how did you and sure. and 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 your wife meet
1: in SA? Is <laughs> a good question. Um, so basically. Uh, as a lot of good romance stories go, I was her boss. She came and <laughs> nice. she... she uh, classic. She, yeah, absolutely classic. Right? So um, the NGO that I was working at is a pan-African NGO and it had headquarters in South Africa. And she had worked for the public sector and um, had felt a little bit think, disillusioned. And she's probably she's the best one to tell this part of her story. So I, I was basically say that, you know, she felt a little bit disillusioned and wanted to engage in some work where she felt she was just being a lot more purposeful. And the work I was in was a lot of community development. She came in and she ran some needs assessments um, around some of our projects in the townships and it was a really great fit for her. And we just developed a friendship. And from there, one thing led to another and here we are. Nice.
0: Very good. Very very good. So you're you're back in Canada now and uh you know, you've got some great opportunities uh that that came up. Um how did you ultimately decide that I'm ready to start my own company um and you know, how did you then develop the idea for Eschaton Solutions?
1: Um walk us through that story. Mhm. Sure. Well, looking back, it might look like it was, it was all about, you know, jumping on opportunity and to a degree it was, but it was also finding a way to pivot. And, um, and I say that because when I first came back, the job opportunity that I was really interested in didn't work out. And um, we still felt like it was the right time for us to be here. But, you know, through that whole process, what I really realized is that my years of living on the continent and being engaged on the ground uh, were very valuable to me, and I wanted to find work that would allow me to capitalize on that to use that and to um, that the organization I was working with would benefit from that and as it happened, I guess there you know most of my working life was actually on the continent so i didn't actually have that much Canadian working experience at all and um, and in my skill set being you know, having been international trade and business development in Africa wasn't immediately relevant to probably most of the job market um, that I was looking into. So I had to make some quick decisions. Do I just, you know, look for something that's completely outside of my sphere of interest um, just to lock down employment? Or do I start something which would allow me to capitalize on my skill set? Uh, So right around that time, I also did a report. I did a survey on the Canada-Africa space. And this was, yeah, I actually, I came out of the market intelligence industry in South Africa. So very used to doing qualitative and quantitative research and analysis and deriving strategic insights out of that. So I, I, I conducted that for myself and I quickly realized that there was a massive gap as far as Canada and Africa is concerned. And um, outside of mining, there's just very little exchange happening. I'm talking about commercially now, you know, for yeah. business purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, this is fantastic. I will fill this gap. I'll start a company that will fill this gap, and that's how Escaton Solutions was born um, here in, in in Canada. And uh, and that's really what kicked it off. It wasn't an easy decision because I felt like I was starting from scratch. But um, as far as Canada is concerned, I had to build up my network. Having been gone for eleven years, and uh, and so on. But but it was it was what I felt was the best decision at the time.
0: Amazing! And, and let's talk about the name Escaton. Uh, sure. What does that mean, and 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 why did you choose that name?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Escaton it comes from a Greek word, uh, which you know if, if any of the listeners are familiar with the word eschatology it typically has to do with the end of time so the the connotation is you know the end of time some people think about an apocalypse or however you want to view it but it's it's a it's a linear a more linear view of history as opposed to a cyclical one where everything just repeats and repeats and repeats so the idea for me is that africa's time is now and we might not have the chances or the opportunities that we have now ever again so there's an urgency to to do something about it to um to help to facilitate africa taking its its role equitably at the global table and that's that was really the vision behind establishing it and behind the name so it was really a decisive moment to act
0: i like it very purposeful. You do. Yeah, very purposeful. It's great. And and you're right. You know, we're in, I mean, for a long time, everyone's been saying, oh, yeah, Africa is the next frontier or or the the last mm-hmm. frontier. Um, and I think we're just beginning to, to own that and to get into that space. You know, we've seen a lot of interesting things come out over the last year, right, with the Africa uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement, which I think is going to be yes. excellent in terms of trade within the continent, which is something that has been missing for, for quite a long time. Um, and and uh, a lot of Indo- uh, African countries are entering into spaces and industries or, or growing spaces and industries outside of just their natural resources um, right. to, to give yeah. them a, a head or a leg in, in, in the global economy. So yeah yeah no and and, and I think you're positioned in, in, in the right space you know and and I guess for for those that want to know what Escaton does right it, you know you focus really on private equity type of investment opportunities in Africa um, how how has that experience been in terms of just even getting deal flow uh, from this part of the world into african companies into into the continent and different countries within the continent
1: Sure. You, you know, it's amazing. Like it sounds a lot more glorious than it actually is. <laughs> and, the, and, and the reason why is because, um, you, you know, there are other, there are other, I guess, firms out there who have a similar focus, uh, but in many ways, we're all pioneers. We're all really pioneers and we live in a country, Canada, which is, is very conservative and uh, not really aggressive in terms of penetrating new markets. We, you know, it's perhaps one of the things that has protected us and our economy at times, but at the same time, it's, you know, we're not up there with with a list of nations that are first to go into a new opportunity. So that comes with its own challenges. Um, But in terms of private equity, that was a great fit when it came to really developing the investment advisory piece, because it, it actually started more the trade advisory. And um, and providing market intelligence to um, public sector and private sector clients, and and naturally because I had my my thumb on the pulse as far as as the companies that were emerging and the and the industries and the markets that were developing, a lot of investors had interest and kind of happened by mistake uh, because I had spent some time in the investment space years ago in South Africa and it was just it seemed a bit too. I felt like I was in a bit over my head. So I was a bit reluctant to get back into it. Uh, But this demand just, you know, kept coming at me and I was like, well, I have to do something about this. And private equity was a great fit because of the flexibility between firm, you know, to firm and um, the willingness to take on a certain amount of risk and to go into these markets. So uh, that, that has been very, very interesting. We've, worked in some very difficult markets, very difficult markets, and had to be extremely creative. Um, But uh, I think overall, it's been an incredible part of my entrepreneurship uh, development, entrepreneurial development, um, just being able to really be innovative, think outside of the box, get the right stakeholders to the table, and and know how to manage them and, and manage competing interests so um so it's been interesting i mean yeah it's it's been a very interesting journey
0: so, so you recently launched uh um uh an initiative called uh afrifurza
1: afrifurza yeah
0: what's that about and 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 why did you decide to to do this
1: sure well Afri afrifurza also has a meaning so Furza means opportunities in Arabic, uh, which is also uh, it's also used in Kiswahili. And and so what what basically happened was, I guess allu- what I alluded to earlier was that in the Canadian market here, um, while there's there's always project sponsors on the continent in Africa who are looking for finance, who are looking for for partners, etc. Uh, the interest from the Canadian market has been pretty muted outside of mining so you know really creating a pipeline of clients from the canadian market this is very different between canada and us and europe but specifically canada uh, i realized that there was a really high threshold or sorry barrier uh, to to participation and you know over the three years i've been doing this i've been able to identify what some of the key issues are the key barriers are and a lot of it is simply you could put it down to misinformation or underinformation on Africa you know people are still thinking about the Live Aid concert I think that was in the 80s when you and I are probably still babies yeah and people think that you know that the same famine that was around then still persists and it's across the entire continent you know and and that might even sound like I'm exaggerating but unfortunately it's it's not it's not the case You know, people have ideas that Africa is too far when we're doing trade with parts of Europe that are even further, you know, or Asia than Africa. Um, There's that there's too much corruption. There's not enough infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's also people that honestly have very little exposure to the continent. So 54 countries, 1.2 billion people. Where do I start? And and that's that's fair. Uh, But solving that perhaps information asymmetry is exactly what First seeks to do, and it seeks to do it in a convincing way. And I think that a couple of ways to do that are, one, to have topical conversations. So to bring stakeholders to the table that can speak from an informed position, stakeholders who are African and stakeholders who are from outside of Africa, to create an engagement, to show people, to model that an engagement is very possible and makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing is to highlight diasporans, African diasporans, and this is this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because here in Canada, you know, I, I've been involved, I've, I've gone to a bunch of forums which are Africa focused, etc., hosted here in Canada, and I found that in a lot of them, um, Canadians w- and, and, and non-African Canadians um, would fly in Africans from the continent. Maybe once a year, you know, to come in and be part of these roundtables or these discussions. Uh, and then they go while there's a whole African diaspora here who is very informed on the continent and is doing work with the continent, okay. um, but but are not engaged. And as a result, there's a disconnect because, you know, when you talk about African priorities, well, the African diaspora gets those priorities, you know, um, and and we serve as natural trade linkages, trade investment linkages because we're doing it. Um, but we're often overlooked. And that's in the public space, in, in you know, Canadian public space, and as well as in the sort of NGO and, you know, private, some of the private sector spaces. So that's something I want to change. That's something I'm really passionate about changing. So we want to highlight the aspirins, um, probably like yourself too, who are out here and are engaged successfully with the continent in one one way or another. It doesn't have to be commercially and um, and do that. And then the last thing is city resilience. So the thing about Africa is it has the fastest rate of urbanization in the world. That's true. And given that, yeah, and given that our population is due to double, you know, in a few short years, and we've got the most youthful continent too, there's a whole lot of, I guess, macroeconomic factors that are really important. And cities are going to be the stage on which sustainability is is really won or lost. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the way I look at it. So I think there's a great opportunity to engage at city level, um, as opposed to just kind of national or or state level or provincial level, which is what often happens with international trade investment. And and when that happens, you have certain interests that would dominate the conversation. But I think SMEs, you know, at the municipal level, um, I think there's a whole ecosystem there that needs to be connected.
0: Brilliant. It, it, it sounds like an exciting initiative and, and something that we'll certainly be watching um, as, as it grows and as you execute more uh, uh, with this. And, and yes, you, you know, you, you're right up, you're, and about some of the points you brought up in terms of the focus uh, that Canadians or Canada as a country has on Africa is nowhere near that of some of the other big players uh, in, in the international uh, right. global scene. Um, And I think, uh, you know, there's an opportunity there that the conservative nature of the Canadian uh, population or the Canadian approach um, is missing out. You know, Um, you know, Africa is a place that uh, is replete with resources and opportunities. And it's one of those where you you have to move quickly uh, like the antelope or you'll be eaten by another lion. You know, it's it's an incredible place Um, in terms of. I guess some, you know, let's talk about defining moments in, in your, in your career. I mean, you, you've had the opportunity to be, um, to have lived formative years, if you will, uh, Mm um, in two parts, major parts of the world, right. In, in North America and in Africa as well. Um, and of course there's probably some interesting, uh, moments that have defined and shaped your thoughts around leadership. Um, so what comes to mind when you think about some of those defining moments, whether it's, you know, when you were in Canada first, before moving to Africa, uh, or when you uh, were in Africa and then moving back to Canada?
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, the way I view leadership is that it really, it really should spill out of, of one's, I guess, life internal composition you know out of your experiences and and in that way it should be authentic it shouldn't be something which is which is forced on people um on followers um or or that one tries to force and I think so I think that a lot of my life experiences have are the ones that have um, helped me develop as a leader and so I would say here in Canada you know growing up as a twin in particular and as an identical twin um, when when it came for when the moment came for me and my brother to do things in separate geographies and sometimes that wasn't even being in a different city it was being on different sides of the city you know so for instance we worked at a camp a summer camp where we worked in different sections and um, so we wouldn't see each other for a long time And and those moments are really defining for me because the things that I probably used to crutch on my brother for, um, I I no longer could. So I had to show up in, in areas that I completely neglected. Those are really formative. And that happened at camp, that happened at my university. Um, He went to school at McGill. I went to school at the university of Toronto. uh, And from there, from there, there was a lot of personal development. I also engaged in a few things where I was also pioneering. So at the University of Toronto, me and a couple of other colleagues, we started a group called the African Studies Initiative, and we were basically trying to push the Faculty of Arts and Science to adopt a more um, a more steady Africa program because it used to have it was like it was very itinerant, like every other year they would offer courses and whatnot. And It was just a lack of focus on Africa, and we actually got to meet with the dean and present our, you know, our demands to the dean and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that was very formative as well, because it was it was organizing, it was mobilizing some some people uh, to accomplish something that was very purpose driven. Also, being a mentor, um, I was a mentor to uh, one one boy based out of Regent Park. And uh, became really, really, really close through, through a program that I was a part of and developed a really, really good relationship. Um, and that was, I mean, that was years ago. That was over 20 years ago to the point that we still have a relationship. We, we hardly talk as much these days. But, um, but that was formative for me because I was able to provide value just by literally, just by being present. Right. And that's all um, that was needed, um, you know, in that scenario. So that, that's as far as Canada is concerned. I think the one thing I would highlight about Africa, and I mean, I, I, I've i learned a multitude of things there, but I think the one thing that I also caught, apart from entre- entrepreneurship, is resilience. Because, I mean, I lived and I worked with people who used to, to meet roadblocks in life, in business, um, mm-hmm. regularly. And serious stuff would happen. Serious stuff would happen. And I used to see... I used to see these people just pick up and keep moving, you know, just pick up and keep moving, and that that really impacted me. And I and I really feel that was something that I had to catch, something that was caught and not taught, so to speak. You know, like you can yeah. learn about what it means to be resilient and how to navigate the circumstances in your life, but but to actually see people doing it and and to learn, you know, in the moments was just absolutely invaluable for me.
0: That's really profound, uh, and the resilient spirit I think is something that's very, very indicative uh, of a lot of people of African descent. When you compare them to other ethnicities, um, you know, there's there's a different breed of resilience that 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 a lot of Africans have that most others don't, um, sure. and and you'll find that difference especially with those that were let's say born on the continent and then migrated versus. Um, you know those of us that that may have been born out here and, and lived here for all of our lives uh, mm. there's a different mentality it's a different mindset with and as as you mentioned right it, a different mindset mm. to approach roadblocks or problems you know mm. um and and for you right at, as an entrepreneur um, as someone that has literally just taken um, the road less traveled by most people um, what are some of the challenges that you faced uh, both? As an entrepreneur, uh, you know, starting a few things in 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 South Africa, um, and as an entrepreneur here, you know, when you decided that I'm going to, you know, start my own my own firm focused on focused on Africa.
1: Yeah, so um, I would say that one of the main things in South Africa, uh, one of the main challenges was just um, just not being able to access finance. Um, because the the banks were just very hesitant to lend to someone who who's foreign, and I actually had permanent residence by the time I left, but still couldn't actually get a contract, a phone contract. I'd have to do prepaid. You know, couldn't rent a house, and I think also you know I hadn't the other thing is I hadn't taken time to build up credit through um through some of these like you know buying retail you know, having accounts at retail shops and that kind of thing because I didn't buy there because, you know, I, I I was also, I was also at times, you know, I had to be very conservative with, with my spend. So I didn't intentionally do that. Um, but even still, um, South Africa is very difficult uh, for someone who's not from the South African region and, um, and is looking to, to enter the market. I think if you come with a lot of capital and, um, you know, that, that kind of changes the situation. So it depends on, you know, if you're doing this sort of investment um, or maybe citizenship by investment approach, that could be a bit different. But for my, for me, that was the biggest challenge with, with my, um, my foray into entrepreneurship there. Um, on this side, on this side, it would be that the Africa facing community um, in, in terms of the, the, the organizations which dominate the Africa-facing commercial community, so business community, yeah. whether it's chambers, whether it's um, other sort of networks, or whether it's some of these, these forums which are created by the public sector, they're dominated by narrow interests. And um, if you don't fit into that scheme, it becomes quite difficult to move the dial. It becomes difficult to... Uh, to To have the influencers in that space support you in a meaningful way, it's one thing to have relationships with some of the key stakeholders, but it's another thing for them to support your work. And um, there, I have so many examples of that happening. And um, at the risk of calling people out, I don't want to. I don't, don't want to go into that right here, for sure, <laughs> um, in terms of specifics. But um, but the thing is that that is a challenge and. And part of those narrow interests are dominated by people that don't look like me, that are not black, that are not African, yeah, and are typically white, you know. So that's the establishment. So, so that's a challenge, um, you know, representing a region as well, which is historically suppressed, you know. It's it's several layers that one has to navigate.
0: Yeah, and, and, and those can be quite quite challenging and quite difficult to to, to get through. But you mm-hmm. you've managed to overcome, uh, start running your own shop. Of you know doing what you uh, have set out to do in terms of uh playing your part to enhance the continent and and, that, and that's pretty fantastic um, Is there anything that, that that scares you?
1: Huh what scares me? Um, so I would say that a lot of my concern is around my family, especially my children. And I think one of the things that does scare me is them growing up in an environment which, uh, which is not safe for them. That's one thing that, uh, that I really think about. Yeah, um, I think also being, I think I have a little bit of claustrophobia. And in the sense that um, if you cage me up and tell me that I can't do what I'm passionate about, I mean, that's, a, that's a bit of a fear yeah. of mine. And, uh, and I think that sometimes, you know, I, I envision a corporate, a corporate tapuma, And I just wonder like how real that situation could be for me. I think, I think, you know, there might be some challenges there. Right.
0: Right. And and I guess because you've, you've, yeah. you've lived that, um, almost independent, uh, free life, if you will, right? Through, through entrepreneurship, it, you know, being caged and the typical nine to five might yeah. just be, might just be, you know, you know, close to almost killing your spirit.
1: Yeah. 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 Very much a dreamer, very yeah. much a dreamer, you know, and that's why I, I do what seems sometimes unrealistic or, or I, you know, I, I focus on that. And so, yeah, I think taking that away is something that would be very difficult for me to deal with.
0: So with that in mind, you, 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 you decided to go back to school, um, to, to get your MBA uh, at, at Rotman, at the University of Toronto. Uh, and you ended up as valedictorian for your graduating year in 2020. Yes. Um, how, how was that? How, how did you feel uh, being elected as valedictorian um, from, from such a great institution?
1: Mm. You know, I was shocked. I was actually shocked when, when the announcement was made that um that I was valedictorian. It was it was a complete shock to me. And um I don't know, I think it is a great honor. It's such a great honor. You know, and I was around such I mean my my colleagues are so distinguished, so a lot of them have just accomplished so much. And um and, you know, even if you talk about the imposter syndrome coming into that environment initially I was like, well I'm not sure that I really do fit here, but I'm here anyway, so you know, let's make the most of it. And um so when they when they selected me, I, I I was puzzled as to why why I got it. And so I asked I asked folks, I asked them, you know. I guess we had conversations around it and it just came down to I would say relationship. Mm. It came down to having authentic relationship and and I think that was a key factor because you know, I'm able to speak you know, in front of groups and that kind of thing. But I'm not the only one that was able to do that, and probably not the best either in our group. So I might have ticked some of the baseline things. Um, but I think the real deciding factor was relationships. Right. People felt like they could trust me to represent them on um, on that level. You know, as a valedictorian, and that was that's just been a great honor for me.
0: That's amazing, and and I think you're probably one of the the few, or if not the first, Black valedictorian out of Rotman. Is that
1: right? Well, I know that I'm the first in my program. Um, I'm not sure if I'm first in the cause there's several MBA programs and actually that's never check that. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I should actually look into that. Yeah. But either yeah. way,
0: still a great honor and and very good accomplishment for you as well. Um, you know, and, and having just finished that, you know, you're still running your business. Um, what what's next for you?
1: That's another great question. Um, So, you know, there's there's a few things on the table. There's definitely a few things on the table. And I think that whatever I do next, it has to align to purpose. And I think that sometimes purpose can be a very windy road. It'd be great if we felt like, you know, or if I felt this is my purpose and it's going to be a linear trajectory and I'm going to get there step by step. Um, but I think, I think with wisdom and maturity over time, I've learned that sometimes I have to take what seems like a bit of a detour to access the network, the skills, the capital to be able to do what I ultimately want to be able to do in 10 years from now, right. or the legacy I want to create for, for my kids and for their kids and leave in this world. So um, there, there's a few options. Like I say, I could end up working for somebody else, um, but I think. I think what I've established the objective is to allow that to be um, somewhat self sustaining, so that the impact that has been created is not lost, but is built upon um, until such time as I might be able to uh, return to it and, and do it even better.
0: Fantastic, Tafuma, so, thank you very much for joining us uh, today and and this inspiring and insightful conversation. Uh, but just before we go, we're we're just going to uh, go into a little bit of a rapid fire session. I'm going to ask you some Uh, five questions uh Mm -hmm. and you're just going to give me as you know your best answers as quickly as as possible yeah okay is Um, there is
1: there a limit as as to how long the the answer is
0: well the faster you can the shorter the better right (laughs) because because that's the part of the rapid piece
1: all right Um, all right
0: so first question what book are you currently reading right now oh jeez,
1: um it's a book by Samoyo. It, it's called Edge of Chaos. Edge of Chaos.
0: Excellent. I actually have Edge, Edge <laughs> of Chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what would you say is your favorite productivity hack?
1: Productivity hack. Okay, I'm going to say segregate your day. Segregate cool. your day.
0: Cool. And yeah. what would you say is your favorite place to escape to?
1: Oh, it would have to be somewhere in Joburg. <laughs> so it's not it's Johannesburg South Africa also awesome. um, yeah yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it's a fantastic city absolutely fantastic city. love it. yeah I love it fell in love yeah. with the places you know the first time I went there it's great
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, what, who would you say is your biggest cheerleader or supporter oh it have to be my wife awesome that's always the right answer <laughs> <laughs> that's always the only yeah, answer we'll just, just,
1: some...
0: <laughs> And and last question if money or resources were not an issue what would you do
1: I would be prime minister and make sure that Africa's on the agenda
0: <laughs> That is fantastic that's that's very different from what I've heard before so that's that's amazing that's amazing
1: That's great. All right all right
0: well, thank you very much, to Tafuma. We really, really appreciate you being uh, on the show with us. Um, you know, you've accomplished some amazing things. You're focused on uh, enhancing the continent as a whole, where, wherever you are in the world. Um, and you're one of those people that we define as definitely made to lead. Um, and we'll be watching your progress. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really been an honor and uh, it's been fun to be here. So I hope that this inspires or encourages and your listeners.
0: Awesome, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at made to Lead show and by visiting our website co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash getfeatured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead.